The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. On Tuesday, April 23, 2013, the stock market whirred with activity. Every second, traders bought and sold tens of thousands of shares. Being late to buy or sell by a matter of seconds could mean the difference between a fortune and bankruptcy. So every trader was looking to get an edge. Just two and a half weeks before this particular day, the Bloomberg terminals on the New York Stock Exchange floor had added Twitter accounts from trusted news sources to their machines, so traders could get real-time notifications about real-world events. And at 1.07 Eastern Time, something really big came through those Bloomberg terminals. The Associated Press Newswire, one of the most trusted news sources in the world, had just tweeted something catastrophic. Breaking. Two explosions in the White House and Barack Obama is injured. And within moments, on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, chaos unfolded. At 1.08 p.m., stock traders started a mass frenzied sell-off. By 1.09 p.m., the Dow Jones Industrial Average had dropped 150 points. Then, at 1.10 p.m., more tweets started to come in. The White House was fine. Obama had not been injured. The original tweet was wrong. At the undamaged White House, Press Secretary Jay Carney called a press conference and dryly showed reporters that there had been no explosion. By 1.13 p.m., six minutes after the sell-off had started, it was over. But before the hoax was found out, it had cost traders nearly $140 billion. What went wrong with the AP Twitter account? Well, if you follow the Twitter account for the group called the Syrian Electronic Army, you might have a good idea. Within an hour, it posted, Oops! At AP got owned by the Syrian Electronic Army. This was the sixth prominent Twitter account they'd hacked in the last few months. They weren't here to prank. They were an army. But instead of attacks on the ground, they attacked information and infrastructure. On this episode, nationalism, high-stakes ransom, and the future of warfare. I'm Keith Corneluk, and this is Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of the Syrian Electronic Army. Imagine a hospital that did just about anything to pad its bottom line. And I do mean anything. From paying people to fake their symptoms to recruiting seniors from public housing, Chicago's Edgewater Hospital did it. Once hospitalized, these patients were subjected to unnecessary tests and procedures. Two of those patients died. The true crime series, If the Walls Could Talk, shares how a Chicago hospital became known as a butcher shop. Listen and subscribe at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com or click the link in the show notes. When we think about armies, we usually think about battlefields, tanks, barracks, ships, and jets. Big groups of soldiers who attack each other using weapons. But in the era where everything is online, from electrical grids and banks to defense systems, 
a country wouldn't have to drop a bomb or send in troops to incapacitate an enemy. Power plants, public transit, all could be taken out without using a single conventional weapon. In a few clicks of a keyboard, a few people in an office building could cripple a country just as effectively as an invading army of thousands, maybe even more effectively. The new frontier of warfare isn't on the ground, it's online. In 2022, computer networks are now battlefields. Already over the last few years, hackers working for governments around the world have taken down electrical grids in the Ukraine and destroyed nuclear facilities in Iran. For more information on that, listen to episode 9 of Modem Mischief, where we talk about Stuxnet. This is the story of one such cyber army, the Syrian Electronic Army. They're participants in an ongoing war. So much of what they do and who they are is shrouded in mystery. The government of Syria denies they have anything to do with it. But here's what we know. Syria, on the northern end of the Arab world, sandwiched between Turkey, Israel, and Iraq, has been an independent country since 1945, when it got its freedom from France. But it's been ruled by an authoritarian regime for most of that time. The country's been led by members of the repressive Assad family, starting with Hafez al-Assad, also known as the Lion of Damascus since 1970. Freedom of the press and any opposition has been steadily stifled over the years, leaving the Assad family in near-complete control of the nation. Hafez's second son Bashar, born in 1965, shortly before Hafez took power, seemed more like a lion cub than a lion. His older brother Basil was the one who was groomed to succeed Hafez, leaving Bashar to pursue other interests. Young Bashar was quiet, didn't make much eye contact, and would fold his tall frame down in a permanent slouch to avoid attention. Unlike his father or his showboating older brother, he showed no interest in politics or the military. Instead, he studied medicine in London and planned on becoming an ophthalmologist. He spent his early 20s living in a flat on Sloan Street in West London, head over heels in love with a British Syrian woman, and went online using computers that were difficult to find in his father's authoritarian regime. Every morning, his friends remembered the first thing he'd do would be to check the online top 40 billboard charts to learn everything he could about what was popular in his new country. He loved the internet and Western pop culture, and his computer was a proud symbol of his newfound identity. In the early 90s, though, his brother Basil died in a car crash, and all of a sudden, this computer-savvy ophthalmologist was called back home. He'd have to take over as next in line to rule Syria. His aging father Hafez groomed Bashar to take over after he was gone. Bashar was enrolled in the Homs Military Academy and given a crash course in military strategy, rising in the ranks as a colonel in the Syrian army. The cub was going to give up his dreams of being a London ophthalmologist. Bashar was able to bring back some of what he had learned in London, though. He married his wife Asma and, in between his military training, asked his father to be appointed head of the small Syrian computer society based in a drab gray office building in the Syrian capital of Damascus. The computer society didn't do much when Bashar joined. It had a few decades-old machines and was largely shunned by Hafez's generals as a waste of time. It was where unpopular officers were sent when they got in trouble. Bashar could do whatever he wanted with the little group, just so long as he learned real military strategy in the meantime. During the 90s, Bashar used his time to lead the Syrian Computer Society 
to slowly but surely bring Syria into the modern era. Internet cafes started to launch around Damascus, and computers were installed into major universities. By 2000, while Syria wasn't exactly Silicon Valley, a lot had changed. His work with computers had brought some computer infrastructure into the Syrian public sphere. Reformers could then have some hope that maybe the young Bashar would be a breath of fresh air for the repressive nation. And on June 10, 2000, the 69-year-old Lion of Damascus, Hafez, was on the phone with the Prime Minister of Lebanon when he suffered a massive heart attack, dying instantly. The country went into 40 days of mourning, and at the end of it, Bashar was in charge. Was he going to bring the same spirit of liberalization to the country he brought into the computer society? In heartening news for reformers, he brought along members of the computer society into the government. For the next seven months, he seemed to modernize the country. He released political prisoners, eased up on rules of criticism of the regime, and closed Meza, one of his father's most infamous prisons. For a while, it seemed this fresh-faced, lanky man might bring hope to the authoritarian nation. But over time, the reforms slowed. Hardline government officials from his father's regime started to push back. Then, with the American invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, appetite for making the country more westernized started to sour. While Bashar was nearly always photographed with an Apple laptop on his desk, his government soon started to resemble his father's, despite the computers. Political prisoners were put back in their jail cells. Dissent started to be punished again. Slowly but surely, the country under Bashar resembled what it was like under his father. The one difference was that the people in charge of the government weren't just old-school soldiers. They'd also included his friends in the Syrian computer society. Bashar had succeeded in bringing a big part of Syria into the modern era. Unfortunately for reformers, that part was largely the oppressive state. Over the next 10 years, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, a horrific drought, and state repression started to drive the country apart and test Bashar and his compatriots from the computer society's iron grip. In late 2010 and early 2011, during a time known as the Arab Spring, people all over the Arab world, from Tunisia to Egypt, started to protest against repressive regimes in a series of popular uprisings helped along by Twitter and other tools introduced recently into the region. In the presidential palace in Damascus, Bashar's officials monitored the unrest in their neighbors with worry. They could see on social media that the country was full of dissatisfaction. All that it would take would be a spark, and they could lose control. They decided they would clamp down hard on any possible revolution. So on March 6, 2011, when 15 teenage boys graffitied pro-Arab Spring messages in the small town of Dara, the Syrian police arrested and tortured them all. What the Syrian government didn't expect was that this would be that spark. People in the city, then across the country, started to protest the brutal regime. The government responded by killing hundreds of demonstrators and imprisoning thousands more. But this wasn't enough. Every repressive move by the Syrian government caused even more protests. By July, a group of soldiers resigned and formed what they called the Free Syrian Army. A full-blown civil war had started. As Bashar al-Assad struggled for a way to hold on to power, he found himself facing an unhappy population, united by the power of technology and social media to connect with each other and backed by powerful forces in the United States and Europe. He was in a tight spot. 
and surely old guard members of his father's government thought he was too weak. They couldn't beat the rebels with computers. Or could they? In May 2011, amidst a sea of anti-government chatter on Facebook and Twitter, a group that called itself the Syrian Electronic Army set up a website, Facebook, and Twitter account. They quickly started spamming rebel-friendly social media pages and news stories with pro-government messages. In their about page, and yes, this shadowy organization had an about page, they proudly proclaimed that it wasn't officially connected to the government, but it was instead founded by a team of young Syrian enthusiasts to fight those who use the internet, and especially Facebook to spread hatred and destabilize the security in Syria. Despite what their about page claimed, it didn't take much digging to find out they weren't exactly independent. For one thing, their website was registered to the Syrian Computer Society, aka the group Bashar al-Assad ran in the 90s. A few weeks later, they didn't even bother claiming they were independent and cut that reference in their about page. And over the course of the next few months, they became a ubiquitous presence on social media and news stories about the budding Syrian civil war. Any criticism of Bashar would cause an outpouring of spam messages on Facebook or in the comments of newspapers saying, We love our president. Or, What about Western atrocities? And there were a lot of those news stories in Syria. Over the next few months, rebel forces grew fast. They started to take cities, and chatter on social media was overwhelmingly positive. It looked like the Syrian government was in serious trouble. That summer, is back against the metaphorical wall, Bashar al-Assad gave a fiery speech where he defended the Syrian armies and claimed they could still win. While talking about various physical armies working for him, he even called out the Syrian Electronic Army. He called them not just a group of hackers, but a electronic army which has been a real army in virtual reality. He had an army that could battle for him in cyberspace. But what was he going to do with it? In 2011, the government working for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was looking for an edge in their brutal civil war. In April of that year, a group called the Syrian Electronic Army was founded on servers owned by the government-run Syrian Computer Society. They had the tools to wage what Bashar al-Assad called a real war in virtual reality. But who would enlist in this kind of army? It's not like they could just bring in everyday soldiers. This army required programmers, hackers, people who could use computers like the back of their hands. In short, not your typical soldier. The first member of the SEA we know about is an unassuming 18-year-old from Damascus named Ahmad al-Aga. Born in January 10, 1994, his floppy dark brown hair and glasses don't make him look like a hardened military man. Instead, he's a 5'10 thin guy with a wide smile. Ahmad was a quiet kid who learned to use computers in the internet cafes that Bashar had installed as head of the computer society. There, surrounded by cigarette smoke and fueled by cheap coffee, he learned to build websites. He was good at it. He started hacking too, impersonating people online and breaking into websites. It was fun, and he was a teenager. It's hard to blame him. But someone from the computer society noticed. One day in the fall of 2010, just as Bashar started to worry about the possibility of a revolution in Syria, armed police surrounded Ahmad as he went into an internet cafe. Oh no, he thought. But I'm a patriot. 
They weren't there to arrest him for his hacking, though. Instead, they drove him to a drab gray building where the Syrian Computer Society was still headquartered and said he wasn't in trouble. Instead, he could help his country. Here was a poor kid who spent his free time trying to escape an unhappy life in a repressive regime. And all of a sudden, the most powerful people in his world were offering him a chance to join the ruling class. He signed up, of course, but he'd have to pick an alias. This was undercover work. I've got just the name, he said, a cocky smile on his wide face. The Pro. With a three and a zero, of course. I mean, he wasn't a noob. In January 2010, he registered a Gmail account to the Pro 0123 which he would use for hacking, but also for his personal use. He sent wedding pictures to a friend, he sent identification documents for travel, and he used the Google account to research targets for attack. This was covert, but he was also a teenager. He wasn't that careful. And by mid-2011, he was officially the head of special operations for the Syrian Electronic Army. From a base in Syria, he spearheaded attacks on sources he felt were either critical of the Assad regime or important seeming in the West. And by the summer of 2011, the army picked their first target, a world away from Syria. On July 6, 2011, anyone who tried to go to UCLA's website would get a lesson in respecting Bashar's government. Hacked, a simple text message proclaimed. Below, the message continued. We are sorry to destroy your sites, but your government's policies and the interference in our interior affairs has forced us to hack your official sites so you will be able to listen to our voices live from Syria. We love our country, and we love our President Bashar al-Assad, and we will not let anyone interfere in our internal affairs. Signed, The Pro. The site was only down for a few hours, but it was a surprising turn. Why would the Syrian civil war intrude into the website of the University of California, Los Angeles? And how did they get in? For UCLA, the pro tried out a tactic the rest of the Syrian electronic army would use time and time again, a phishing technique. Phishing, with a PH, is a surprisingly simple hacking technique. Just like a phishing pole, it involves laying out a bait and hoping someone bites. For the bait, the pro would send out an email that looked like it came from the target's own organization or a trusted account like Gmail or Twitter that would take them to a website that looked like it belonged to their normal login page. Something innocuous like, Your request timed out. Please log back in. Sometimes the target wouldn't bite. They wouldn't open the email. They would leave before filling out the information. It's a slow process. But sometimes a user wouldn't pay that much attention and type in their information. And then the pro would have their login information and their way in. Not very complicated, but surprisingly effective. Not the sort of thing that would require CIA-level hacking skills. Instead, the kind of game a smart 18-year-old like the pro could pull off. Over the next few years, the Syrian Electronic Army never really changed their tactics. Because why bother? They didn't have to develop sophisticated tools. They just had to hope they could find a distracted or careless IT person. So why did he start with UCLA? It seems like it was a target the pro had heard of and a place to show off the reach of the Syrian Electronic Army. And if that doesn't seem like the most calculated target for your first strike, maybe it's worth remembering. The pro wasn't the youngest member of the SEA. Of the roughly half a dozen known members, all of them were in their late teens through early 20s. 
So they did what a lot of other young men on the internet who hide behind a fake identity did. They trolled. Starting in 2011, the Syrian Electronic Army hacked a lot of websites. Like with UCLA, they didn't seem to steal information, they just did the equivalent of spray-painting a tag on the side of a wall. When visitors would try to go to the site, they'd find a clumsy picture and the phrase, hacked by the Syrian Electronic Army. After UCLA, they went after Harvard and then LinkedIn. But they seemed like they were getting bored just tagging sites. They moved on to the next level of trolling. On March 22, 2012, the pro sent a message to a social media manager at the Saudi Arabian TV network Al Arabia that looked like it came from Twitter. But to read it, they'd have to log back in. Once in, the Syrian Electronic Army used the access to get control of both Twitter and Facebook accounts. And they did their usual move of changing the Facebook page to show the Syrian Electronic Army was here. But then they took it a step further. Explosion at Qatari natural gas field. Qatar Prime Minister resigns. In a quick flurry, they put out tweets and Facebook posts that mimicked a normal Al Arabia format. But it was just lies. Where the social media pages were reclaimed quickly, the potential in there for psychological warfare and trolling was hard to resist. On August 5th, they hacked Reuters' Twitter account with a series of pro-Assad messages. On February 26th, they hacked the French press agency Twitter account. And on April 21st, 2013, they hacked 60 Minutes claiming the U.S. government caused the Boston Marathon bombing. They went after dozens of news sources, from the New York Times to the AP. Some of their tweets seemed designed to just make teen boys laugh, like, Chaotic weather forecast for Lebanon as the government decides to distance itself from the Milky Way. Or, Saudi weather station down due to head-on collision with a camel. Maybe it's no surprise they even targeted the satirical news site The Onion. The pro even went after the FC Barcelona soccer club. But just to post tweets taunting Real Madrid. Then, both BritneySpears.com and SelenaGomez.com. If this was an army, the only real damage seemed to be system administrator's sanity. But while they were engaged in these high-profile goofs on Western pop culture, the Syrian electronic army was also involved in attacks close to home with real human consequences. In 2013, a researcher at the University of Toronto discovered spyware with names like Dark Comet and Black Shades on Syrian dissidents' computers. The spyware was hiding in the background of hundreds of computers, sending personal information like location, emails, and keystrokes back to the Syrian government. Hundreds of people critical of the regime were imprisoned with information found this way. The pro denied he had anything to do with those attacks, but researchers traced them back to IP addresses owned by the Syrian Electronic Army. It seemed like the army's outwardly facing attacks were a cover for something more insidious. In late 2012, they hacked a Facebook page of a Syrian opposition leader. It seemed like just their normal graffiti-styled attack. But then, even after they reclaimed the page, it started to send out spyware to anyone who visited the site. Security researchers started to realize that the army was fighting a two-pronged war. One, public and goofy, to raise questions and confusion. And a second, more insidious one. They were helping to track down rebels for the Syrian government. That attack on AP's Twitter feed that caused the brief collapse of the Dow Jones? The same day, the Syrian Electronic Army infiltrated the Qatar Armed Forces and Foreign Ministries. 
They downloaded hundreds of files, including minutes of classified meetings, government bank statements, and evidence of Qatari support for rebels. This is the sort of information that would have required spies working around the clock to find in the pre-digital age. By early 2013, they had a list of hundreds of rebels they'd given the government and had defaced websites around the world. Their mission seemed to be going about as well as it could. While there aren't a lot of details about how the organization was structured, it seemed like the roughly half-dozen 20-year-olds were set up like a military operation. There was a strict hierarchy, with an offensive officer and intelligence officer sharing responsibility. Each attack would follow roughly the same pattern. Three to five days of deep surveillance, a fast, less than an hour sometimes, phishing campaign, then a week of monitoring intercepted information before defacing the website. It was efficient. But already by a year in, there seemed to be cracks in the organization. The government didn't like the way the army was structured. They didn't exactly care for the attacks on Western pop culture targets. And they certainly didn't like the constant troll wars with other hacker groups. Because by summer of 2012, the Syrian Electronic Army was heavily involved in fighting with groups that had nothing to do with Syrian civil war, from Western pop culture to Turkish hacking groups. The higher-ups talked to the young men in the SCA like the pro and told them to focus on domestic targets, but it was hard for them to stay sharp. They were young guys who felt like they were on top of the world. They all had cocky undercover names like The Pro, The Tiger, and The Shadow. They picked a fight with the loose hacking group Anonymous. Anonymous posted things critical of the Assad government, but wasn't exactly a real target for the government. But the SEA kept going after them. On July 24, 2011, a hacker for the SEA who called himself Sakur, Falcon in Arabic, took down Anonymous's network Anon Plus, and that pissed off the wrong people. In July 2012, the Syrian Electronic Army found an alarming folder on Pastebin. Hundreds of their classified files stolen from Syrian dissidents suddenly were out there in the open. Anonymous had broken into the Syrian Electronic Army's servers. Oh shit. They backed off attacking Anonymous, but it wasn't over for them. 17 months later in January of 2014, the pro tried to log into the web hosting site, but couldn't. Confused, he opened a new browser window to make sure the site wasn't down, which did happen pretty often. It was hosted on Syrian networks, which weren't the most reliable. The site took a while to load. Yep, just down again. Fucking internet, he thought, before his jaw dropped. The site had been defaced. Just like he had done to hundreds of sites, there was a big spray paint-like tag on it. But this time, it was a different group. It said, You imbeciles will attack our country with fake phishing emails and will accept your lies and don't do anything? That is the end you deserve. And above that, a message from a hacking group called Turk Security, with the phrase, Come to daddy, in Turkish. The pro, fingers shaking, called the physical army with bad news. The Syrian electronic army wasn't the only cyber army in town anymore. The Syrian electronic army was founded to provide hacking support for the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad during a brutal civil war. Run loosely by young men in their late teens, it split its time between spying on dissidents and spamming high-profile Western websites. But after some high-profile slip-ups, like their leak to Anonymous, and their own site getting taken down by a rival Turkish group, 
the Syrian Electronic Army was on thin ice. All their Facebook pages went down for a few days. And when they came back, their attitude was different. A little more careless, almost like the military cared less about what they did. And during this time, one member of the group, known as the Shadow, started taking personal hacking projects without checking in with the generals first. The army was starting to splinter. The Shadow, real name Friar Dardas, was a little on the old end of the army members, since he was nearly 21 when he enlisted. He lived in the city of Homs, near the Lebanese border, and had a different energy than some of the other nerdy thin teens like the pro who had made up the rest of the army. With his carefully trimmed beard and a cigarette always dangling from his lips, he looked a little cool, at least compared to the pro. He was an intelligence officer who handled work with friendly hackers across the Middle East, from Iran to Yemen. He worked on the periphery of the main Syrian electronic army actions, so was given a lot of free reign to do what he wanted, while the pro handled phishing attacks on Western news sites and the government pushed for more invasive attacks on rebels. At some point during the chaos of 2013, the shadow started phishing attacks against targets that had nothing to do with Syria. And unlike the high-profile news or Twitter attacks, he didn't tell the world. Most likely, he didn't even tell his fellow soldiers. In July 2013, an employee at a Chinese online gaming company got an email from their mail provider saying they needed to reset their password. The employee didn't think much of it and reset it, feeling safe because there was two-factor authentication set up. Little did they know that they fell into a classic SEA trap. But this time, it was a one-man job. The Shadow took the Chinese gaming employee's stolen password to get into its network and get information about the game and the personal information of its players. A few days later, an IT person at the company received an eerie email from the Shadow. This is the last warning. Communicate with me or I will do something you do not like. Signing it like he was still working for the Syrian Electronic Army, the Shadow demanded money. Inside the company, they went back and forth, and after haggling, sent him 15,000 euros. The Shadow had a problem, though. He had thousands of euros, but no way to use it. Syria's banks were cut off from the rest of the world. He needed a way to get that money. Luckily for the Shadow, just a few months earlier, a Syrian national living abroad had reached out to the SEA to see if there was anything they could do to help. In April 2013, a 34-year-old German man named Peter Romar messaged the pro on Facebook to see if he could help the cause. The pro vetted him, decided he was serious, and on April 28, 2013, passed his information along to the Shadow, who was supposed to handle international allies. The pro probably didn't think much of this, but it made Romar the Shadow's problem instead of his. The pro had more important things to do or at least wanted to go back to trying to break into BritneySpears.com. The Shadow friended Romar on Facebook and said he'd be in touch. That's where it stayed until July, when the Shadow scrolled through his friend list trying to see if he knew anyone who lived in a country that could accept Euros. Damascus? No, same problem. Tehran? Even worse. What's this? Walter Schausen, Germany? Huh. He messaged Romar on Facebook and told him there was an opportunity to help out his country. Peter Romar jumped at the chance. The Shadow sent him the money information, and Romar laundered it back to Syria. 
The shadow gave him a cut and told him to keep quiet in case any other members of the SEA asked about it. And with that, the shadow had a ransom scheme that let him make serious money off his connections to the Syrian Electronic Army. In October, the shadow broke into a UK-based web hosting company and eventually got 16,000 euros from them. When it came time to pay, the shadow put them in touch with Romar, who arranged bank details. Wildly, Romar gave him his real name and a copy of his passport to help arrange for the wire transfer. He didn't care about security, because for him, this was war, and maybe they thought they'd be too scared to go after him. Over the next six months, the Shadow and Romar hit 14 targets all over the world asking for more than half a million dollars. They didn't make that much, but it was enough that they were living well off of it. Maybe the Pro and other members of the SEA knew about it, but if they did, they didn't seem to care enough to stop them. Until early 2014, that is, when the hammer fell. The UK web hosting company reached out to the government with all the information they had on Romar. British intelligence shared it with the FBI. The high-profile attacks on American news sources hadn't gone unnoticed, and extortion was a crime the FBI could go after. FBI started surveillance. Court warrants across the world from the United States to Germany and the UK started coming in, and law enforcement started going through their Facebook and email accounts. The Electronic Army was sloppy. They sent messages to each other that included all sorts of personal information. They joked about the crimes they committed on Facebook Messenger. This wasn't a buttoned-up secretive hacking group like the United States Tailored Access Operations Unit. These were a bunch of kids who didn't think that they could get in trouble. And in Syria, they really couldn't. Who was going to go after a wing of a brutal government? But Peter Romar wasn't in Syria. In 2014, Peter Romar tried to use his bank info to send money to the shadow, but all of a sudden, couldn't anymore. His account was frozen. Shit. The shadow went to log into Google, and his account was frozen too. Google isn't based in Syria, it follows US laws. Shit. The pro logged into Facebook, and of course, same deal. He couldn't. His account had been disabled for violating terms of service. Assad security teams didn't control the tech companies. The jig was up. Over the next year, the main members of the SEA were paralyzed, and in the spring of 2016, German authorities arrested Peter Romar and sent him to face trial in the United States. The FBI put the Pro and the Shadow, now 22 and 27 respectively, on their most wanted list. For a shadowy group, their business was all out in the open. The Pro and the Shadow are both still in Syria. It's not like Bashar al-Assad is going to extradite them to the United States, but their hacking days are over, at least for now. There's a $100,000 reward for their capture, and they've kept a low profile since mid-2014. And by 2016, the role of the army was in question. The main members couldn't operate. People knew about how they operated. Ironically, they'd forced Syrian rebels to be more sophisticated to avoid the SEA. What was the Assad regime going to do with its army? By mid-2016, the leaders of the hacker group known as the Syrian Electronic Army were in hiding, cut off from Western technology tools. And the civil war was different now. In 2011, rebel groups were sweeping the country. For an authoritarian leader like Assad, 
it had felt like doomsday. He marshaled every force he could find, including the Syrian Electronic Army. But over the years, the war had changed. The traditional army was crushing rebel groups, using chemical weapons and other illegal tactics. Meanwhile, some of the rebel groups themselves splintered, including some who formed Islamic fundamentalist terror cells like ISIS. The West seemed less interested in getting involved. In September 2015, Assad formally asked the Russian government for help, and Russian troops poured in to help put down the rebellion. Within a year, most of the rebel strongholds had been taken back. The war wasn't over, but Assad was less worried. He was going to win. So by 2016, there didn't seem to be as much a cause for the pro and shadows work. But Assad didn't close down the army. Instead, he shifted its mission. In 2017, the Syrian general staff announced a new commander for the Syrian Electronic Army. Yasser al-Sadiq was a little older and sported a cop's mustache. This wasn't another one of those teens who might go off the rails. Instead, he led parades through the streets of commandos wearing matching uniforms, who weren't there to deface Western news sources, extort money from gaming companies, or even deliver malware to enemies. Instead, this was more of a public relations arm. They went back to their original tactic of swarming social media with messages of praise for Assad and shouting down opponents. Are they the front line of a war? No. Instead, they're more like an occupying army or a cyber police. A warning to dissidents that if they say things online, the Syrian electronic army is there watching. And despite all the missteps in the way, that's what the Syrian Electronic Army represents. One more piece of a nation's war capabilities. This army did its main job. It freaked out opponents, spied on its citizens, and brought attention to the Syrian government's cause. And now, the fight has shifted to yet another phase. This one may be more permanent and more regimented. But like a website defaced by the pro's work, Syria's online world has been tagged, and no one can forget that the Syrian Electronic Army is there. I'm Keith Korneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. And another way to support us is on Patreon or a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show plus monthly bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Korneluk. This episode is written and researched by David Burgess, edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernhard, a.k.a. Mr. My The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Modem Mischief and slide into our DMs. Thanks for listening.